Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America. And welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we're going to be speaking to President Trump's former national security advisor, the former national security advisor to Mike Pence. General Keith Kellogg is here. He's got a brand new book out. It is powerful. You're going to want to get it. And we're going to talk about so much of what's going on in the world today and how the Biden administration's foreign policy, its security policy, is affecting your and my and our children's and our grandchildren's future. He is one of the greatest thinkers in the national security movement. We're so lucky to have him on the show today. So in just a few minutes, we're going to have General Keith Kellogg, former National Security Advisor to President Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, on the show. Now, before we get there, I want to get through a couple of stories that I think you might find interesting. One of them might frustrate you, might anger you, might further increase your sense that in America today, we have two justice systems, dual justice systems. What is that? Yesterday, it was announced that the Biden Justice Department has restored the pension for former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. This pension was lost when McCabe was fired by the Trump administration for lying during an investigation. That's according to the Inspector General's office. Now, he's never charged criminally. But he was accused, and it was documented, and the Justice Department felt it was able and capable of firing him based on the evidence that was there. And so you have a deputy FBI director who oversaw one of the most crooked, poorly run investigations in FBI history, an investigation in which evidence was tampered with by the FBI, not by outsiders, but by the FBI, He is going to get a lifelong pension, despite his termination. And then you look back and you see, well, Mike Flynn was convicted of a lying charge on a statement in which the FBI really wasn't sure, according to its own documents, that he lied. Think about that. Think about the difference in treatment, the disparate treatment, the unequal protection under the law that these two cases lend to all of us to think about. We are creating an us and them justice system. One set of people treat it one way, another treated another by the same institutions, the U.S. Justice Department, the FBI. This is a problem. This is a serious issue for all in America to see, to debate, 
and hopefully one day to address. We can't let it go on this way. Our confidence in our system is eroding. Now, there's a second story that I want to bring up, and that is the January 6th commission. As you know, I did some reporting on Benny Thompson and his past support for an insurrectionist separatist black extremist group in the 1960s and 70s and how today he's on the opposite side of insurrection. Back then, he was criticizing the police, even though they got killed by the group he supported. Today, he's embracing the police. A very different contrast, a clear contrast between two different Benny Thompsons. Well, I'm going to give you another, and it isn't just Benny Thompson. It has to do with many of the Democrats, Adam Schiff, Steny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi. Back, as you heard yesterday, Benny Thompson announced that many Democrats, including the leadership, embraced the notion that because Steve Bannon, the former Trump White House advisor, is refusing to comply with a subpoena from the January 6th Commission, the Congress is going to pursue, the Democratic Congress is going to pursue criminal contempt charges against him. I understand that. If you don't get your subpoena answered, I guess, and you choose to willfully defy it, you do face the consequences. Here's the problem for Democrats. They were against contempt and for obstruction before they became for contempt and against obstruction. Let me remind you, it was nine years ago this year that a Republican House, and I think rightfully so, found Attorney General Eric Holder, then the Obama-Biden Attorney General, to be in contempt of Congress, both criminally and civilly. It was a historic vote, one of the first, it was the first time, in which a sitting chief law enforcement officer of the United States was found in contempt. And he was referred to the Justice Department. But when the vote was taken, Democrats like Benny Thompson, like Steny Hoyer, like Nancy Pelosi, like Adam Schiff, still there all these years later, they walked out in the vote. They chose not to vote. They would not support it. They criticized it. They suggested it was political or racist to pursue Eric Holder because he would not turn over documents from the Fast and Furious investigation. Keep in mind, the Fast and Furious investigation was about a federal law enforcement agency wrongly allowing guns illegally, allowing guns to walk across our border and to fall into the hands of the Mexican cartels. And some of those cartels later were engaged, in, at least in one case, in killing a Border Patrol agent. That is a serious matter that Congress has a right to review. And I would argue uh, the contempt was justified then, and it may very well be justified today. Hey, if Steve Bannon doesn't want to comply, he should face the music. But the Democrats are, as they are in so many issues, just like the insurrection issue with Benny Thompson, they are flip-floppers. They're one way one day, another way another day. There's no consistency. They're against contempt before they're for it. They're for insurrection before they're against it. They're against cops, and then there's suddenly four cops, depending on the moment. There is no value system. There is no consistency. And very smart Americans are going to see through this hypocrisy, I believe. But I wrote this story, gave you all the details. You can make up your own mind. Go look at the details yourself, and you'll be able to see exactly why we wrote this story and why there's a conflict in how the Democrats are going about contempt. Important story. Hope you enjoy it. Hope it makes some sense to you. We wrote it because the facts are there. We give you all the historical stuff, even the roll call 
from the 2012 vote so you know that what we're telling you is true. All right. In a few minutes, folks, we're going to go and have an incredible interview with our good friend, the former general, former national security advisor, retired general Keith Kelly, coming up right after this message from our great sponsors. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook a, a vegetable dinners and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick House Nutrition and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest. He's been on this show before, but he's got something big coming out next week. A brand new book called War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. This is one of those post-White House books you're going to definitely want to get. Joining me right now is the former general, the former national security advisor to both President Trump and Vice President Michael Pence, General Keith Kellogg. General, welcome back to the show. Hey, John, thanks for having me again. I really do appreciate it. I've been talking to lots of people, and of all the books that have been coming out in this big flurry in this late summer and fall, yours is one of the most anticipated. I want to, What motivated you to write this book, and how is it going to be different from some of the other tomes that are out there right now? 
Yeah, you know, John, actually, it all started in the Oval Office one day when I was sitting with the president, and he made a comment, you know, when, when all this is said, and then you ought to write a book, and I said, no, nope, I'm not going to do a book. He said, no, you really ought to do it. So I went home, and I started talking to, actually, my daughter, and we were sitting and talking. She said, Dad, you need to write a book, and it should be titled Behind Closed Doors. And I go, why? She said, Dad, you have an insight on President Trump. Yeah. That Nobody else has had. I said, you've been with him since the campaign in 2015-16. You've been with him for four years, longer than uh, Flynn, uh, McMaster, Bolton, yeah. uh, Brian, Brian by 33 days. You've been on every major national security decision, and you've sat in there and just talked with him. And you've been on Air Force One and Marine One talking to him and everybody else. And, and the reason I wrote it, John, I was sitting there going, listening to all these books that have come out is people really don't understand Donald Trump. They see the public face out there, and quote, the mean tweets, unquote, that are going forward. But but I saw something a lot different that Americans have not really seen, and that's where the book really goes to it. Is, You know, he, here's a guy who's uniquely American. He loves America. I mean, he loves the people in, in Washington, Kansas, or Washington, Michigan, and not necessarily people in Washington, D.C., He's got, a, he's got an incredible instinct. I used to tell him, just follow your instincts. They're absolutely incredible on on being able to, to do th- something in a hurry. And you make decisions rapidly, and they were uni- uniformly good decisions. I mean, people cannot criticize what we did with our policies in the last four years. And you know, I said, well, maybe they don't like the tweets, but the policies were pretty good. Yeah. And the other one he did, he had, and I would tell people this, and they did, and I said, he has incredible empathy. I mean, I remember one time sitting in the sitting in the Oval just talking to him in the middle of the coronavirus uh, event, and and he said, you know, just out of the blue, he said, you know, I just want Americans to get better. And he said it just like that. Said, Isn't that amazing? Go out and talk to the American people. Just like that, he said, "No, no, no." I said, "You know, I've got to be a leader, and you got to show strength and everything else," which is very Churchillian, by the way. You know, so somebody who's really studied Winston Churchill—that's kind of what Winston Churchill did in the 1940s. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and and I was like, "Okay," I said, "I kind of know where you're coming from," but you know, the the public face out there—that's what the people write about. I, I saw the personal level of where you were, the personal way he interacted with others. And the decisions he made, and his decisions were fast and hard. I mean, that's when we went after Soleimani and got him. Yep. When we went after Adi, when we defeated ISIS and destroyed the Caliphate, or when we went after Syria. And I saw those decisions, and I said, these are the kind of things that need to be told to the American people. And it's from somebody who sat down with him the whole time. And, you know, very candidly, John, he's, he's probably going to get mad when I say things like that, but I said, Look, I'm just telling the truth. I said, you know, the, the best one was, when uh, I told him, I said, you know, Mr. President, you're really a reluctant lawyer. And he got a little bit irked at me. He said, no, 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 I mean, that's a compliment. I said, <laughs> I know American forces, that we're going to be committed, one, to win. And, and the second is you're going to commit them knowing that we're going to put young men and women in harm's way, but we're going to do it to, to defeat the enemy going forward. But you won't do it unless that condition is met. So you'll drop gloves in a heartbeat, and we proved that, to use a hockey term. Uh, but it's only. <laughs> really, really necessary. And I saw that, and I said, and we in the military, that we're in the military, we want a commander chief like that. We know yeah. that he's going to use us when he needs to use us, but he's going to be behind us the whole way. So I, those were the things that, that I thought about when I wrote the book. I said, I want the American people to see it. Will it buy it or not? I don't know. But the fact is, it's what I saw, and it's the truth. 
it's an amazing thing. He's such a different man. I've had been able to, I've been blessed to interview him a few times in the White House. You mentioned that compassion. One time we're doing an interview and somehow we got off on a tangent about a guy and he asked me, how's he feeling? I said, he's still been sick. And in the middle of me, he said, stop, we're stopping. I'm like, okay, hey, get that guy on the call. And he actually calls this person who's home and affirmed and sick and just wishes him well and says he's praying for him. And I just want to let you know, I'm thinking the most powerful man in the world. He, he's, he, he was so moved to just call that person. And people will never see that side, right? They, all the negative stuff about him is always in the media, but he has this remarkably uh, personal, compassionate side that that most Americans never get to see. Yeah, and I, John, that's the reason I wrote the book. I mean, I just wanted people to see it and said, okay, here it is. You know, take it, and, and it's a counter to the books that have come out, you know, from Woodward and the others that are, that are really gospel. Now, these yep. are books are, I saw it up close and personal. Wow, well, that's important. Eyewitnesses are the best uh, records of recorders, recorders of history, and you were clearly one of them for a very long time in this run. Um, but I want to move on to some foreign policy things. But what is one of your favorite um, anecdotes or telling anecdotes that you think uh, comes through in this book, uh, "War by Other Means"? Yeah, I think probably the best one is actually was the Soleimani decision because it, because at the time everybody thought this guy was untouchable. You know, General Soleimani was the leader of the Quds Force. He was probably the number three guy in Iran. Right. You know, you know, after the president and, and the supreme leader. And when when the assault on the the embassy at the United American Embassy on New Year's uh, in twenty twenty occurred, we knew it was being pushed by Soleimani and the the, the Iranians through their surrogates, the, the the Iraqi surrogates that he had there. Right. And I remember when we went to him, when the embassy got hit, he was immediate. He immediately said to everybody in there and on a call, because we assembled. One thing we did much different with Biden is everybody collapses in on the president. That's what was kind of the policy. You support the president. We did that with the vice president. He said the embassy will not fall. Wow. And he told Millie that the rest of them to reinforce. And so we actually reinforced with a battalion of the 82nd and another Delta squadron and put, you know, uh, Apaches above the embassy and everything right. going forward. And okay, they're going to pay for this. And so when we sat and talked to them in the yellow in the yellow oval in the residence, one of the options was to go after Soleimani. And a lot of people pushed back. No, you can't kill Soleimani. He's an Iranian general. He's a revered figure. And and I looked at the president. I said, you know, Mr. President, you know, I've talked about this before. And this is a time when we super escalate. And I said, you've always wanted to do that. And what I mean by super escalation is you go to a level the enemy doesn't think you're ever going to go to. So you don't go tip for tap. You know, he's going to do this, we'll do this. You go to levels, they go, oh, my God, I can't believe we're going to this level. And I said, you go to that level, you'll shut this down in a heartbeat. And he said, well, what's the level? I said, we killed Soleimani. Well, people in the in very senior people in that room that day said, well, first of all, Soleimani's not going to travel. I said, yeah, he is. And he's going to travel because of his arrogance. And his arrogance is going to kill him. So the president said, let's get him. So we, and we knew he was going to be traveling to Iraq. And it's, he made that decision on the spot. Let's go there. And even though a lot of people were against it because they said, well, if you kill him, it's going to start a new war in the Middle East. You know, this is the third, one of the most revered people in, in Iran is the third senior person in there. Uh, and I said, you know, let's do it. So he said, go after it. And we put together the plan. And, uh, you know, within 72 hours, Soleimani was traveling, traveling to Baghdad, which we knew he was going to do. He never broke pattern. And that was his arrogance. So the fact is he did the same. He traveled exactly on the same airplane, the same flights all the time. Amazing. And well, because he thought he was invincible. Yeah, uh, exactly. Arrogance. Got out of his airplane, got in his car, and we had, uh, you know, 
three drones above them. Both of them armed, each one of them armed with two Hellfires, and we double tapped each vehicle with two Hellfires and got him and got Mohandas at the same time going forward. And then the entire world held their breath. And, I, and the result was, and this is the important part of the story, is the, the reason why this is so amazing is the Iranians then realized, because of super escalation, that the Supreme Leader was next in line to go. So they, <laughs> well, they called the Russians and they called the Swiss, who are, are you know, who yep. are inter- and said, hey, we're going to respond. We're going to respond with this many rockets and missiles. We're not going to hit anything, and then we're done. So they called us and they told us that. Or they wow. Called us. And so we were sitting, we went to the Situation Room, and we watched the, the rockets and the missiles come in. And uh, they hit dirt. And a lot of people in that room said, oh, well, we just got lucky. I said, oh, no, sir. And I, and I looked at the vice president and said, no, each one of those missiles and, and drones that was coming after us are, are tipped by GLOSNAS, which is the Russian equivalent of GPS, which puts you in about a 10-meter circular error probable. In other words, you're going to hit what they want to shoot at. And they were all fired into the desert. So we were sitting there, watched them come in. They all hit dirt, didn't hit any facilities, didn't hit any hospital. And I, and I looked at the president, and everybody was very quiet for about 10 minutes. People didn't say anything because he, he had his arms crossed in front of him. He was looking at the screen, you know, just thinking. And then he looked around the room, and he said, we're done. He got up and walked out. Wow. And basically said, we have now diffused the situation. We know that they're scared to death of us. We know by what their actions – that we achieved our mission and they are afraid we are going to escalate to the Supreme leader and they don't want anything more to do with us. This episode is done. He walked out of the room and it was one of those things that, okay, he made an internal decision. It's over. You know, we've solved the problem. Next problem coming up, let's go for it. And I just watched him and said, that was incredible. It was incredible presidential decision-making and the way he responded to an attack, he didn't get excited about it. He didn't, you know, rub his hands in a negative manner. He basically said, okay. He said they were going to do it. They did it. We're done. Let's go to the, go to the next subject. Amazing. And, and what a contrast to the president we saw in action in July and August on the withdrawal of Afghanistan. You've been a very strong critic as, uh, as to how we conducted ourselves in the exit in Afghanistan. You, you could just see the difference in management style in that episode. Our embassy's not falling right. It starts with that. We're not letting that embassy fall. And then we're going to take the bad guy out. We're not taking any um, uh, grief from this guy any longer. And then the way we, we went out in such a different, uh, uh, shameless, shameful way in Afghanistan. And funny thing is, many of the same military advisors that were there, or probably alongside you then, were, were next to Biden. So it shows the difference that leadership makes, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And it, it, it presidential leadership, incredible. By the way, one of the funny stories was Mark Milley, the chairman of the Chiefs, was, as we were reinforcing the embassy in Baghdad that day, he looked across the room right at me and he goes, we now have three times as many soldiers there in the embassy that we had in the Alamo. And I said, you know what? <laughs> you know, going forward. But it was, but yeah, it was the same people. And, and yeah. I'm pretty sure they gave him the same advice in Afghanistan that they were giving us. And he just said, no, we're leaving on a date certain which to me, it was a debacle, and but it was a self-inflicted wound. And, and the thing that got me on presidential decision-making watching that is, remember there were pictures of him up at Camp David by himself. Right. We never allowed that to happen with the president or the vice president. It was automatic. We fell in on him. And even if he didn't want to see us, we were there for him and made sure everybody was there, and he didn't have that. So he made that decision on his own without any advice, and he owns the whole thing. Yeah, he does. He does, and, and history, I think, will look back very harshly. Contemporary history already looks back harshly, but I think even long-term, 
the consequences that he has brought upon the world with Afghanistan is going to be felt for many, many years to come. You always have a clarity in your policy. And I think that, you know, the greatest moments in American foreign policy are when there's clarity. The American interest is defined. Our enemies know what the lines are. And there's no ambiguity. There's no waffling. There's no weakness. You came out a few days ago and and said something that I think a lot of people in the real world agree with and was waiting for a leader to come out and say, you said, we've got to change our policy towards China and force them to pay restitution for what they did with the coronavirus. How has that played out since you uttered those words? You know, I I think I've got some, for the most part, some pretty good resonance with it It because I think people were kind of surprised that somebody said, okay, we've got to come out and do this on on restitution. Because look, people have to realize that that we are now looking at at a country that is a polar opposite of ours. Mm-hmm. China will be our greatest problem going forward. It's a competition between two totally different systems. And they think long-term. You know, look, their claims on the South China Sea go back to the Han Dynasty of 2006 B.C. You know, that's like we're... Isn't that amazing? You know, 205 years of ours. And they think like that. And we need to think hard and long about it as well. That doesn't mean we blockade their ports. No, but what it does mean is we try to make them a pariah nation. And we go to the world court or we go to places like that consistently and apply pressure on them to do it. And we get we gain the alliance structure that we need to put pressures on them because they are a threat to us. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate that. Look, the way I look at it, we've actually had five major events in the, in the United States history that are seminal events that are, affect national security. One was obviously the Revolutionary War. Right. Then there War. Then there was World War II. Then there was the Soviet Union and what we've had in the Cold War. And this, the fifth one to me is China. And we have to address that, that these guys are playing a long game. They're economically getting stronger at our expense. They're building up their military. You, you've seen what they've done with uh, what I call this, the sponge theory of establishing this is open source, the, the missile fields they've got out there. They're putting right. ICBMs. Uh, they've created, created hypersonic missiles, which are only designed to, to defeat anything close into us. If we want to move a carrier battle group close to them, they're going to cause problems with it. And then the intimidation of Taiwan is really clear, and we haven't reacted to it at all. And, you know, it's, it's one of those, not only do we need to push back on the economics, but, you know, this is maybe a time when we look at that famous term we've used, strategic ambiguity with China, and said, there's no longer any ambiguity. We're we're going to be pretty strategic about this, and we're going to defend what we need to defend, and especially that arc around China, and, and have the courage to be able to do that and go forward. You know, and pick up the phone, and you call the commander of the 7th Fleet, and you say, you know, get the carrier battle group 5, which is the Ronald Reagan battle group in, right. in Japan, move it down and have it you know, have to go around the island five, six, or 20 times out there down in Taiwan and at least send a message to the Chinese, don't screw around with us. I said, you, you're making a huge mistake when you do something like that. And I haven't seen that. And we need to somehow force them to have accountability. And the reason in the paper when I wrote it was about places like the world court, because you've got to give world opinion on your side to make sure that they're, they know that, that we need to hold them accountable. But they'll only react, I believe, they, the rest of the world, if they believe there's a strong leader there, that will, in fact, back up their words. If they don't see backed up with strong words, they're going to say, no, it's not worth my time because you're going to fold in a crunch. Yeah. And they read those tea leaves every day to make sure that they interpret it the right way. If you're in Taiwan right now, given the Biden administration's sort of muddled response to the provocations of the Chinese Air Force, particularly, what is the state of mind there as best you can tell? I mean, how 
much a threat is Taiwan facing to, that it could face an invasion or some sort of hostile military action? Yeah, I think if, if I was sitting in Taiwan, my concern would be, what is the American commander-in-chief doing? I mean, no, nobody doubts our ability militarily to do something because we're, you know, we've got the systems and the ships and the aircraft and the troops to do that. It's the will of the commander. I remember saying, John, a couple of months ago, I was actually talking to Martha McCallum, and, and we were sitting there talking about it, and, I, and she said, what keeps you awake at night? I said, what keeps me awake is the lack of will of the president of the United States, Joe Biden. I said, I don't think he's got a core value in him that he will fight for. And my concern is when it really gets to be tough, he will fold. Wow. And I really believe that. I don't think he's got those core values to do it. He's never shown that to me. Now, look, this is the guy, John, that when President Obama went around the table in the situation with him about going after Osama bin Laden, he recommended no. And I said, that this is a, a guy who had killed over 2,500 Americans on 9-11, and, and we were pretty sure we had him in our gun size. And he said, we need more information. My recommendation is don't go. That's stunning to me. That's an admission of weakness. Yeah. Just have a core value of American strength. I believe uh, the former defense secretary and uh, former CIA director Bob Gates once said that the only problem with Joe Biden is he's been wrong on every foreign policy matter in the last 40 years. And you see this time and again, Afghanistan is just a repeat of bin Laden, right? He, he's always been on the wrong side of these big issues. Yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, he's been getting away with it. But the trouble is now, this, remember, this is the first time. He, he got away with that as a vice president. That's right. He got away with, now he's the president. It's, you, know, yeah. you know, in our Article 2, Section 2, he's the commander-in-chief. He's the main guy, and he's responsible for it. He makes those decisions. And, and I go, I don't think he's got, you know, I, John, I hate to say this, but I don't think he's got the mental capacity right now to make those hard decisions because he's, it was never in his DNA. It wasn't his upbringing yeah. that he— he never had a business he had to run. He never had a military formation. He had to command or fight. He's always been in, for lack of better term, staff positions. And now he's the guy running the show. And I'm not sure he's got it within him to do it. It's a harsh assessment. I got, I've got it. I understand it's harsh. But I'm just speaking as honestly as I can. Yeah. And uh, boy, when you're in the biggest job in the world, if you're not prepared for it, the gap becomes imminently, almost instantly recognizable. And I think people are seeing seeing that gap, that gap between the skill and determination that we expect in our president and what this president has brought to the job. We were talking off air before, and I, I was really fascinated. I want to draw this out of you. When the French found out that we had canceled their nuclear submarine deal and they pulled their ambassador, which has never happened in 250 years of our relationship, how did you look at that? What surprised you most about the president's lack of involvement in that? Well, first of all, I was stunned by it. And I was stunned because... And you made this comment, you know, the French have never, ever in our diplomatic history had pulled their ambassador. So that was a clear shot across the bow. Yep. And it was a clear shot to uh, from Macron uh, to to Biden on this. And I said, how do I thought to myself, how did this happen? You know, and it was clearly nobody had talked to the French leader about it. You know, Trump would have picked up the phone and called Macron. And he actually he and Macron got along incredibly well. He, was, he actually treated him like a younger brother. It was fun to actually, it was actually enjoyable to Interesting. watch to uh, interplay between both of them because both of them were outsiders. You know, both of them, when you think about it, both of them became yeah. uh, leaders of the country as outsiders and somebody who never, they had never, people never thought they'd get to it. But it's clear to me he had, nobody even talked to him about it. And I was stunned when uh, Carol went over to France and told that uh, news interview that, uh, well, we 
the president was informed of the decision. I said, whoa, wait a second. A billion-dollar decision putting nuclear plans in the build of ships uh, to Australia vice France, and you don't even pick up the phone and you call the French to do this. It shows that he was totally disconnected with what was actually happening out there, which is kind of frightening to me. That means somebody is not telling them what needs to be needs to be told them. Look, I will tell you, I know this for a fact, and I'm absolutely convinced that if that had happened to the Trump White House, there would be somebody out there on on the unemployment line, the senior. <laughs> yeah. He would not have bought into that. There have been yeah. consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And I was surprised when he did it, when I surprised, and I saw what Macron's re- response was, because I'll tell you, Macron is not that kind of guy. Macron is really good. I mean, he and Donald Trump used to, in fact, there were times with Donald Trump when he talked to Macron, Macron would actually take him too serious at times. And then the president would have to say to him, you know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding with you. Oh, okay, go on. So they'd have this banter back and forth. Sometimes <laughs> it's kind of hard and tough. But he would, I, I would, I know for a fact he would have never done that. So when they talk about adults in the room or the alliance and strength of the alliance, I said, that just belies that. Said that you, know, you didn't care about the alliance. Well, I know they didn't care about the alliance because they didn't alert anybody when we were pulling out of Afghanistan. I know that for a fact. He didn't call Merkel. He didn't call Macron. And he only called Boris Johnson after he'd been badgered about it uh, during a press conference. Jeez. It just, again, though, John, it sets a pattern. And I'm a big yep. believer in pattern. And the pattern it's setting is that this that he's not in control of what's going on. Or if he's in control, it's he's not giving very good guidance. Yeah, yeah. neither option is good for the American people. I'm going to finish up with something because I know this is in the book and I can't wait to read it. And folks, do yourself a favor. Mark next Tuesday, Mark the 19th, to go get this book. And you don't even have to wait. Then The great thing about Amazon, you can go right now to War by Other Means, at, just search it on Amazon, Order the General's book. This is a must read. It's going to be one of the most important books of the year. I know you have been such an important voice on the tough approach that the Trump administration took to China. You were really one of the key architects. And all last year during the debates and the campaign, whenever Joe Biden would come out of his basement, he he kept saying, I'm going to do it differently. Uh, Donald Trump's made this too antagonistic and uh, he's got it all wrong on China. I'm going to be a different president with China. And we're now nine months into the Biden presidency and he's kept the entire Trump portfolio on China in place. What does that say about what he told the American people last year? Well, I I think he was I don't think you read our agenda and even their words, you know, because our agenda was pretty solid and it was yeah. pretty good going. I think people realize it. And just place not only China, John, but our immigration policy was pretty good. We had really shut that down and and our defense was pretty good. But because the president, I mean, President Trump, he always put America first and he said that everything we do starts with Americans. And I think that's important. That And, and I think that Biden missed that that he's more worried about Washington, D.C. than he is about the other places that are out there and the Americans. And, and I think he, if, he just, if he would just hold to the policies we set with, improve, you know, if you want to, okay, improve on them or, do make them a little, or tweak them a little bit, but don't cancel them. And that's what he's done. He canceled the Keystone Pipeline and now energy prices. I don't know where you're living at, but, you know, we're, we're looking. I saw a gas sign just this morning driving in. So it was over $4 a gallon. Wow. So I said, oh, boy, here we go. And you look at national natural gas, they're talking about yeah. 46 increase. They're talking about now inflation's gone up to five, according to the Wall Street Journal this morning, over 5% in the last month alone. I said, if he just kept those policies in place from the Keystone Pipeline to what we did in Afghanistan and what we've done with other places, everybody would be fine. And tweak him if you want. But he was so 
adamant about killing all of our programs. And just because they were Trump, I'm absolutely convinced if we had come out and we said, tomorrow the sun is going to rise in the east, he would have said, nope, that's Trump policy. It's going to rise in the west tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He, was, he just was the antagonist. It's to be the antagonist. But that's the danger when you don't have a value center that your policies flow from because you basically anything goes at any moment and we feel like we're wandering. I was at a dinner the other night and a, a, a Democrat came by the table real quickly and, and you know, he's like, hey, boy, you've been pretty tough on the president. I'm like, oh, well, I'm just you know, trying to call out the facts. And he said, listen, this guy's an overachiever. You're missing the whole story. No other president could have taken us from energy independence to energy codependency in nine months. I mean, it's historic what he's done. And I, I, we all laughed about it, but it's true. We went from, you know, Donald Trump gave it the keys to the White House. We were completely energy independent. And now we're back to the reliance on Middle East economies. And we just made Vladimir Putin's energy empire more powerful. It's unreal. It's just unreal. I want to ask you one last question because the title of the book has always intrigued me. And I want to know, War by Other Means, why did you pick that title? Yeah, actually went back to when I was in the military. I had to read a book by von Clausewitz called On War. And it was a fascinating piece that everybody takes out of that. His point was war is politics by another name. I just reversed it all. I said, actually, politics is a war as well. It's war by other means, meaning war by politics. And if people sometimes think that it's not a, a battle. It really is a battle of ideas. It's a battle of philosophy. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of Americans out there. And you have to treat it like a war. The other side wants you to lose this war. They want some socialism or communism or whatever you want to call it out there. They don't believe in the same values that I do. And we have to, we have to go to war in that regard. So it's war by other means, and so it's a political war. Yeah, such a great title. And uh, I think people now will have that context as they read this great book. General, congratulations. It's on my reading list for next week. Tremendous book. We're all excited about it. And we're always grateful when you come on the show and, and share your wisdom with us. Good luck with the book. Uh, folks, I'm going to tweet it out as well. So you're going to have a link, direct link today. Check my Twitter out and you'll have a direct link to go check the book out. Best of luck with this. And we'll try to get you on again real soon, sir. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. It really is. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out 
by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Wow, what a great interview with the general. I feel like we learned so much today, so many things to ponder in the consequences of foreign policy, Afghanistan, China, the border. And I think General Kellogg laid them out in clear, stark terms. Hopefully you got something valuable from it. I know I did. And if you remember, go to Amazon this week and check out the general's new book. Such an important document, such an important record of the Trump presidency from an eyewitness with a military background, with a security background, with a foreign policy background, and also with the reputation of being able to, as General Kellogg has for many years, work with both sides of the aisle. It is a book well worth reading. Great in the fall. Grab the book, sit out in your back porch, and enjoy this cool weather and a good couple hours of read. That would be a real win for General Kellogg and for you. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Have a blessed weekend, and we'll be back Monday with some big guests. On Monday, we're hoping to have Peter Schweitzer, the great author, the great journalist. We're going to talk about Nancy Pelosi's unbelievable run of lucky stock trades. And I say lucky in quote-unquote Marks. Her and her husband have been making millions upon millions while she's in office and often leaving behind the appearance of favoritism, of insider trading, or certainly the perception of it. That's why the Stock Act was originally created 10 years ago. We're going to dive into that issue on Monday, but until then, enjoy the weekend, watch some football, have a good cup of hot cider, and may God bless you and God bless this extraordinary country of the United States. As he always has, you've been listening to... John Solomon reports the podcast from Just the News. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text JUSTNEWS to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text JUSTNEWS to 989898 right now.